How do we pursue happiness? Where do we put our trust? Is it bank accounts, pension plans, the best health care money can buy, insurance policies? It's, it's all good stuff if you can get it, I suppose. But sometimes Hurricane Ian blows through and it all comes up short. There are all kinds of uh, sayings and idioms that we have running around in our, our minds. You get what you pay for. Uh, better late than no never, right? Early bird gets the worm. Um, bird in the hand. There's a lot of them refer to birds for some reason. I don't know why that is. So when I decided I would uh, use an idiom or a saying for the title of this message uh, at the end of my rope, uh, I was thinking about uh, whom Emily was calling Naman, and it occurred to me while she was saying it that way that that's almost certainly the right way to say it. I've always said Naaman. Uh, oftentimes when people come to us before reading the scripture up here, they'll come to Pastor Natalia or myself and ask how this is pronounced, and my answer always is, however you say it, that's how it's pronounced, and everybody hearing it is going to go, oh, that's how you say it. Uh, because how can we know for sure? Uh, so Naman or Naaman, uh, I was thinking of him when I, uh, when I used this, this sermon title. Uh, but then I thought, I better look up the origins. You know, sometimes the origins of things are uh, more than a little bit troubling. And what if it comes from some violent hanging reference or something? You know? So I googled the origins of end of my rope. And at first, Google ignored me, uh, the first one in the list, and it gave me the origins for uh, against the ropes. Uh, as in, yeah, she really is against the ropes in this job, you know. Which, as you might have guessed, is basically a boxing reference, you know. You're against the ropes, nowhere uh, to go. And then I came across this explanation, the term at the end of one's rope is primarily an American phrase, though it may well be traced all the way back to the 1680s. The idea is of someone who has been thrown a safety rope and has run out of length. Hmm, I thought. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. But the next explanation in the list sounded even better to me because I can immediately picture this from all my travels throughout Tanzania in East Africa. Those of you who have uh, been there as well many times a day uh, as we're moving about the countryside, we uh, see this. We see an animal, usually a goat or a cow, tethered by a rope. Uh, oftentimes at the roadside, eating the grasses that grow in the ditches, uh, or up in the villages. So this idiom, the uh, explanation goes, alludes to a tether, which is a rope tied to an animal to limit its movement and keep it from wandering off. The animal can only graze as far as the rope allows. Thus, once it reaches the end of its tether, it has run out of options and resources and is bound to become frustrated. At the end of my rope, so this is a long way to go for a metaphor, I realize, but stay with me. Back to 
Naaman, or Naaman. He was the commander of the Syrian army, a brutal and powerful force on the earth. The Lord had helped him and his troops defeat their enemies. So the king of Syria respected Naaman very much. He was known to be a brave military leader. And so remember, we're reading about this general in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Syrian armies had destroyed Israel. But General Naaman is still spoken of with words of respect, even though he leads an army of the enemy. The author even says that the Lord helped Naaman defeat the enemies of Syria. Among those would be Israel. Now, there are certain human qualities, I suppose, that are universally respected. Bravery, loyalty, wisdom, strength. The fact that Naaman had these qualities could not be denied, not even by his fiercest enemies in Israel. But Naaman also had a problem. Naaman had the terrible disease of leprosy. Naaman was living with a death sentence. No matter how strong or brave he was, how mighty the nation was that he represented, Naaman was helpless against this foe. And he knew it. In ancient times, leprosy was not only a terrible, disfiguring disease leading to an early and certain death, but the disease came with a special bonus. It was considered to be the result of a curse from God Almighty. Like the plague in the 1200s or smallpox in the 1700s or perhaps AIDS in more recent times, people feared the very idea of leprosy. And when fear takes over, people often react in cruel ways. Leprosy came to be referred to as the living death. And often its victims were treated as if they had already died. They actually had funeral services and were conducted for these people while they were still living with the disease so that they were considered dead to the society and their relatives were even allowed to claim their inheritance. Now, people thought to have leprosy were forced to declare that they were unclean if they were approaching or being approached by anybody so passerbys could could uh, keep their distance. And they were kept at distance by the throwing of stones if it was necessary. You get the picture. It was an absolutely hopeless condition. Now I wonder where you turn in your own life when things look hopeless. When you really can't do a thing to help yourself. Where do you turn? We place a high value on independence in this country. The very thought of being dependent on somebody is more than a little troubling to most of us. So we guard against the feeling, often to the extent of being in denial. Because if you have yourself convinced that your bank account or your lifestyle or your zip code or your pension, your physical fitness, your age or anything else you have or do is keeping you from ever being dependent on somebody else, then you are, in fact, in 
serious denial. So as usual, our faith tradition, our theology can help us here. We so often gather during worship as families come forward carrying a little one to be baptized, to be sure we'll baptize anybody at any age. Obviously, when it is a baby, the child can't come up without some help, and there are those who believe that babies shouldn't be baptized for this very reason. It isn't their decision, they say. If the parents carry the baby up to be baptized, then it won't be an act of the child's own will. The child has nothing to do with that, they say. How very un-American. Naaman was used to giving orders. He was not accustomed to taking them. He was used to solving problems, attacking them even. But now he found himself in a new position. He was helpless. And he was dependent on the help from someone else. So naturally, Naaman believed that if there was hope for him, it would come through the chain of command. A powerful person looks to those with power and authority for the answers. One day, while the Syrian troops were raiding Israel, they captured a girl. And she became a servant of Naaman's wife. Sometime later, the girl said, if your husband Naaman would go to the prophet in Samaria, he would be cured of his leprosy. Now, you can't get much lower in the chain of command than a captured servant girl. This is pretty much the bottom rung on the ladder. In fact, it is so low that the striking thing about this verse is that the captured servant girl dares to even speak to the wife of the commander of the foreign army that has just ripped her away from her own home and her family. But she does dare. And when she speaks, she offers some compassion, some assistance. She is trying to help this stricken man. Now, not many people can get an audience with their own king, but Naaman could. When Naaman told the king what the girl had said, the king replied, Go ahead, I will give you a letter to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman left and took along 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 new outfits. So let's face it, this is the way the world usually works. It's who you know. The servant girl didn't say a thing about the king, but Naaman lives in the real world where power and money and influence are how you get things done. So he's going to the top. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 really nice suits. This ought to get me an audience with the king of Israel. Again, I ask, where do you look for hope? How do we pursue happiness? Where do we put our trust? Is it bank accounts, pension plans, the best health care money can buy, insurance policies? It's 
It's all good stuff if you can get it, I suppose. But sometimes Hurricane Ian blows through and it all comes up short. In fact, if you're looking for real hope, true meaning and purpose, what Jesus calls the abundant life, then these things are going to come up short every time. As a community of faith in Christ, we understand that we are in this together. That we all need help to live into the promises made in our baptisms. So when a baby is carried forward to the baptismal font, we say together, we welcome you into the Lord's family, a fellow member of the body of Christ and a worker with us in the kingdom of God. We're in this together, we're saying. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian armies, was desperate, so he leveraged all his own power and influence on behalf of himself, and he headed for Israel. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in fear and shouted, that Syrian king believes I can cure this man of leprosy? Does he think I'm God with power over life and death? He must be trying to pick a fight with me. Uh, sometimes all the power and wealth in the world can't or won't do a thing for you. Naaman was sure that wealth and power could solve his problem. He was not about to put his faith in the voice of an ordinary captured servant girl. Naaman left with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent someone outside to say to Naaman, Go wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then you'll be completely cured. But Naaman stormed off grumbling. Why couldn't he come out and talk to me? Once again, this great general doesn't even get to see the person in charge. He has to deal with servants, and he doesn't like it one little bit. But in spite of Naaman's faith in the chain of command and power and wealth and influence and patriotism, why can't I wash in one of the great rivers of my own country, he wonders aloud. I have to wash in a dirty river here in Israel. In spite of all of this, Naaman relents, takes the advice of his servants, enters the Jordan River, and comes out healed. His leprous skin is made as smooth as a baby on its way up for baptism. That captured servant girl was right all along. Her world had crumbled. She had been taken from her home and family to serve in the enemy commander's house. It's just the rich and layered and amazing story from the Hebrew Scriptures. There are kings and military officers and the might and wealth of nations, but the real power and hope is in the faith of this captured servant girl. She brings the mighty Naaman to the God of grace and healing. Naaman's will had nothing to do with it in the end. The gift of God's grace and forgiveness is not affected one way or the other by the force of anyone's will 
other than the one who suffered and died for our sins in order that he might save us, set us free, and give us back a new life filled with hope and promise, one that we can bring with us everywhere we go, whether it's by our own will or against our will, that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Turns out that the commercially favored notion of American happiness and wellness is really a kind of tether holding us in a restricted area, unable to truly sustain us for long. We find ourselves at the end of our rope, straining for what we believe will be true happiness, which always seems to be just beyond our reach. So, hear this. The leading edge of the gospel cuts that rope and sets you free. Free from being tethered to shame or lack or guilt. The good news leads us into the abundant life, into green pastures beside still waters marked with the cross of Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are in this together. Amen. The gospel is never a zero-sum game. I don't have to defeat those who are lined up as my enemies in order for my own well-being. I want you, when you think about this story, to forget about the kings. There are two of them. Forget about the powerful military general. Remember this captured, enslaved servant girl who could have been praying to her God for the demise of the family. She had been stolen and was indentured to serve. She could have been praying for their destruction, but she didn't see the world that way. She had taken her own faith in a gracious, loving, healing God and shared it even with those who would have been her enemies. And this is the power that will change the world. It will not be triumphing over our enemies. It will be the gracious forgiveness of a loving God. We have been claimed and forgiven in our own baptisms. We, like that servant girl, no matter what we face, cannot lose that. It cannot be taken from us. And when we leave here, it goes with us. And we always have the opportunity to share that with others. And when we do, the world is changed. So we go as gifted, forgiven, chosen children of God. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.